This is Africa Digest. It's 1700 hours Central African time. Hello and welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We're broadcasting from Johannesburg. We are on frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa. We're also on Channel 902 on the DSTV audio bouquet. My name is Spomelele Zondi and I'm with Onel Nzinzi, Wisani Matebula and Figile Lingwati. Let's take a look at the top stories on Africa Digest this hour. Burundi's controversial presidential elections are underway. Nairobi gets a facelift ahead of a state visit by U.S. President Barack Obama. In economics, South Africa's Kumba Iron Ore suspends its half-year dividends for the first time after a plunge in profits. And in sports, South Africa and Bangladesh take on the first test match in Chittagong. Here's Annalyn Sinti with your news. Thank you, Spumelelene. Very good afternoon to our listeners. Hello, turnout is being reported in several polling stations in Burundi's capital, Bujumbura, at the start of voting in the country's presidential elections. Before polling stations opened on Tuesday, two people were shot and killed in the capital, a hotspot for recent protests against President Pierre Gronziza's third term bid. Gronziza is expected to easily win, the absence of a, in the, win in the absence of a strong opposition. The main opposition parties have called for a poll boycott. Sarah Kimani has more. The spokesman of the Independent National Electoral Commission, Prosper Ntahurugamie, says following the deadline set by the Constitution of Burundi, the postponement of the presidential polls to July 30th is practically impossible. Mr. Ntahurugamie says if they were to organize the polls beyond July 26th, they will be out of the deadlines. Despite those claims of the Independent Electoral Commission, the government has declared to be ready to work on a possible delay of the July 15th up to an unknown date so far. Nigeria's President Muhammadu Buhari says he will not appoint cabinet ministers until September, having taken office on May 29. Buhari wrote in an article published in the Washington Post outlining his plan for defeating the militant Islamist group Boko Haram and rooting out corruption. He held talks with U.S. President Barack Obama at the White House on Monday as part of a four-day visit to Washington. The United States commands the government of Senegal and the African Union for bringing former Chadian President Hissène Habré before the extraordinary African Chamber of Senegal. Following a 19-month investigation, Habré has been charged with torture, war crimes and crimes against humanity, including murder and enforced disappearances. U.S. Ambassador to Senegal James Sumwaltz and the Ambassador at Large for War Crimes issued Steve Rapp attended the opening of the trial on Monday morning local in Dakar time. Constitutional law expert Shedrick Guto says banned political parties in Swaziland have the option of going to the African Commission on Human Rights to have government forced to unban them. Swaziland banned political parties in 1973 and some organizations have been declared terrorist organizations. Guto says although the constitution of Swaziland makes provision for freedom of association, about 10 political parties, youth structures, non-governmental organizations and civil organizations remain banned in the country. 
if you really did have a proper independent constitutional court in Swaziland, they would have had to deal with that. But in the absence of that, they could have gone to the SADC tribunal, which has been suspended by SADC countries. The only way forward is for them to be able to make application if they want this to be challenged from a legal point of view. And finally, Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta on Tuesday dismissed gay rights as a non-issue ahead of a visit by U.S. President Barack Obama later this week. Kenyatta says there is no room for homosexuality in Kenya and that the issue is not on the agenda of his meeting with Obama. Homophobia is on the rise across much of Africa and homosexuality remains illegal in many countries, including Kenya, where it was outlawed under British colonial legislation. Channel African News, I'm Onilinzinzi. Thank you very much, Onele, with that news update. Your time is 17.05 Central African time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Let's start in Burundi, a country that holds its presidential elections today. The African Union is not part of the observers there. The AU says that so far Burundi has failed to make the environment conducive for polls. Burundi is holding elections as President Pierre Nkurunziza faces a fierce opposition against his bid to run for a third term in office. Kaleta Wanjohi reports from Puchumbura. According to the African Union, the July 21st presidential elections in Burundi are wrongly timed since the country has not successfully held the proposed peace dialogue between the government of Pierre Nkurunzinza and parties that are opposing his bid to run for third term. The government of Burundi boycotted the Uganda-led mediation and insists on going ahead with its planned presidential polls of July 21st, which it postponed from 15th July. Three opposition parties in Burundi have already pulled out of the presidential contest in protest. And just as was the case in the 29th June parliamentary elections in Burundi, now the African Union confirms that it will not be part of the elections in Burundi and it will not send observer missions for the Burundi presidential elections. Jacob Eno, the spokesperson of the Office of the African Union Commission chairperson, explains. Um, The chairperson, particularly of the African Union Commission, decided that the... African Union Commission will not be deploying election observers as we would do ordinarily. And the reasons are those that you know already. The conditions are not conducive for the African Union to send election observation mission. The African Union says that preventing the likelihood of a civil war in Burundi is of greater importance now to the continent other than President Pierre Nkurunziza's forceful way of taking the country into presidential polls. In situations where um, there is peace, people can proceed with issues of democracy. But when the situation of peace and security is not conducive, then it's very important that uh, due consideration be paid to those issues in order to resolve them on a timely basis for the countries to move forward. It is expected that the African Union Peace and Security Council, of which Burundi is a member, will soon sit to discuss steps to be taken against Burundi, now that the country has two times defied pleas by the African Union to hold elections until there is peace in the country. Koleta Njoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa.
Kultanjoe for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting edge and hard hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Right, we'll go back to Butchumbura in a bit. Uh, let's go to our cholera updates now, where health partners in South Sudan have managed to reduce the case of fatalities of the cholera outbreak declared last month from 10 to about 3% by mid-July. This is a result of scaling up of urgent and life-saving cholera activities by the National Cholera Task Force, which includes all relevant partners in response to the waterborne disease. Jane Matebula has this report for us. More than a 1,000 cholera cases, including 39 deaths, have been reported in Juba and Bo counties in central Equatoria and Jongle states, respectively. Children under age 5 account for about 13% of all suspected cholera cases. Of the 39 deaths, about 20% were children. Cholera is particularly dangerous for young children as it causes rapid and severe dehydration due to excessive diarrhea and vomiting. The probable risk factors fueling transmission include residing in a crowded internal displacement camp with poor sanitation and hygiene, using untreated water from the water tankers, and a lack of household chlorination of drinking water. Urgent and life-saving cholera activities have been scaled up by the International Cholera Task Force, which includes all relevant partners in response to the increasing number of cholera cases. Cholera treatment centers and oral rehydration points have been established in Bo and Juba to manage suspected and confirmed cholera cases. Humanitarian partners are rehabilitating boreholes, supporting chlorination of water delivered by water trucks and increasing water treatment infrastructure for bicycle vendors. Partners are also promoting good hygiene practices such as hand washing and cleaning of water storage facilities, particularly in protection of civilian sites. Partners also conduct life-saving awareness campaigns in schools focused on explaining cholera, its signs and symptoms, prevention methods, and measures to control the disease. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Jane Matebula in Johannesburg. It's 17.11 Central African time. You're listening to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance with Ms. Pomela Lezondi. I'm going to be with you until 1800 hours this evening. Let's go back to Burundi now where polling stations have opened in the controversial presidential elections with PM Gurunziza widely expected to win a third consecutive term. Shortly before voting started, at least two people, a policeman and a civilian were killed, according to witnesses. In a string of explosions and gunfire in the capital, Pujum the epicenter of three months of anti-government protests. Joining us on the line now is Channel Africa reporter Bernard Bangkukira, who is in Puchumbura for us. Hello and welcome to Africa Digest, Bernard. 
Okay, thank you so much. Bernard, could you just tell us what the turnout was like today? You, can you repeat the question, please? Yes. The turnout of the people that came out to vote, how was it today? Um, across here in Bujumbura, as usual, the, the turnout was a little bit low. This is usual because Bujumbura has been uh, characterized by uh, massive protests against the third-term president. So there's no surprise that the turnout uh, be lower than expected. This is usual. But um, it, it's not the same situation in the, in, in the whole capital of Bujumbura because there are some neighborhoods which favor President Nkurunziza. For those, the turnout was normal. And uh, in the countryside, across the country, the turnout, as usual also, from the reports that we got from our, uh, from our colleagues working for the media synergy covering the, this uh, election, uh, they always reported that the turnout was good. And uh, this is what they told us. But um, uh, I have to say that I talked to some people who didn't go to vote. They said, now, no, our leaders have told us not to go to vote. Then I couldn't go to vote. While others say, oh, I have to go to vote because this is my right and the country must have elected people. So <laughs> it's really... So there's a, it's a subject of, uh, you know, some people favor the elections, others no. There were no major opposition parties contesting this election. Um, did those that you spoke to speak about that at all and, wh- and how it made them feel? Now you say? The fact that there were no major um, opposition parties contesting this election, um, did it affect the, um, the view of those that you spoke to? Hopefully, hopefully, because I managed to talk to some people. They said now nah, uh, they couldn't. Some have decided not to go, despite the, the intimidation that was carried out against them, that they might face some problems in the coming days. But others decided to go to vote unwillingly, but they went there. But some really said they couldn't go to vote because um, they estimated that uh, their leaders have not uh, have told them not to go to vote, and they estimate most of them estimate that uh, the election cannot be free and fair because of uh, uh, the current situation, which is not favourable. Marked by intimidation. Bernard, you're saying that there are people who went to vote unwillingly. Could you explain that? Why are you saying unwillingly? Uh, I'm saying this because, for example, I talked to the opposition leader. He told me that they got many of their members uh, who came to them and uh, told them that, please, if you do not go to vote, we are in danger. We not receive public services like uh, health center, uh, health services like education services, because if you go to public offices, they tell us to show the the voting cards to check whether we have we have voted or not. If they find that we didn't vote, we cannot get anything. But if we they find that we have voted, then we can get the service. So such people 
uh, met across the country, and um, uh, we consider that those who went to vote in these conditions, when they're unwillingly, because they were forced by the situation. We know that the African Union has decided not to be part of the observers that are there in Puchumbura, but have you spoken to any of the observers that are there, and what are they saying? Um, it's true that uh, the African Union didn't say, didn't send any, uh, any, any observers, and among the observers that we managed to see, we just saw the observers from the local organizations in Burundi, but also we had the UN electoral mission here in Burundi, which sent, as usual, as it was, for example, the, uh, during the last uh, parliamentary elections, they sent their observers, and when I talked to them, <laughs> not so many like to speak, but in some ways they say, okay, now, we are an electoral mission in Burundi. Our mission is just to observe how the election is going on. This is what they say. They say, we go there because our mission is just to see how elections is. Nothing else. This is what they say. But um, I couldn't manage to speak to a local observer who most of them say that, oh, they are not entitled to speak. Uh, they are just simple agents. They couldn't speak. So I don't know whether they feel to speak because of uh, uh, because they did not uh, uh, have this right to speak, or if they or, or if they just feared to speak in front of uh, the observers and the security officers who were deployed there in big numbers. Um, when are the polling stations um, expected to close? Yeah, the, the polling stations uh, were expected to close. Now, the, let me say the polling, the polling exercise was expected to close at, uh, uh, at 4 p.m. And after that, the counting of the vote starts. So we expect uh, that most of the polling stations are now continuing with the vote counting. And the first batch of results, when are they expected to be out? Um, the Independent National Electoral Commission hasn't announced officially the date of announcement of uh, uh, the results. Uh, but uh, we, we are waiting for him to say, to, or to, to, to give this date. But we have to understand that, for example, uh, during the last uh, parliamentary elections, uh, the National Electoral Commission gave a deadline of three days, but said, "Oh, the exercise is too difficult. We, we can, you can expect the, uh, the the election results within a week." So, we don't know whether it will be the same case, or we don't know whether tomorrow we'll have the results. We don't know if it will take three or four or even a week to 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 to, to have the election results. Let's just wait. Bernard Pankukira, thank you very much for joining us. Okay, most welcome. Bernard Pankukira, there is our Channel Africa correspondent in Puchumbura in Burundi.
1719 Central African Time. You still listen to Africa Digest with Ms. Pumela Lezondi right here on Channel Africa. Let's go to Kenya now, a country that's preparing to welcome the United States President Barack Obama. And as it prepares to do this on the 24th of this month, the Nairobi County government has spent half a million US dollars to spruce up the capital Nairobi, home to nearly half a million people. Nairobi, once known as the city in the sun because of its scenic beauty, has in recent years been littered with mounds of garbage and dilapidated roads. Now, the Kenyan capital has, to a large extent, regained its lost glory after a rare extensive beautification program. James Shemanyula is in Nairobi and he prepared this report for us. The beautification of Nairobi at the cost of half a million US dollars is not unrelated to this event. The spruce-up has been carried out by the Kenyan capital's county government, whose governor Ivan Skidero was elected during the 2013 general elections that also ushered in President Uhuru Kenyatta's administration. Despite insecurity caused by Somalia's al-Shabaab militants, the past two years have seen Nairobi host various international conferences and summits, with the latest being the upcoming Global Entrepreneurship Summit, to be co-hosted by Kenya and the United States. Manoa Espiso spokesman for Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta has announced that more than 1,500 investors from all parts of the world will participate in the Nairobi summit, briefly tracing the background of the summit, Espiso said. Organized annually since 2009, the Global Entrepreneurship Summit has emerged as a global platform with leaders from business, international organizations and governments looking to supporting them. This will be the first time the Global Entrepreneurship Summit will take place in sub-Saharan Africa. So now, Nairobi, the financial hub of Kenya, looks neat and tidy. Palm trees have been planted along the road, connecting the city with the Jomo Kenyatta International Airport as flapping Kenya and U.S. national flags line the entire route to be used by Obama's convoy. Flower beds that once drooped in the heat are now sprouting along Main Street. Trees have been neatly trimmed. Neglected sidewalks have been paved. Perennially choked drainages have been unclogged. Roadside bushes have been cleared and grass cut on all roads to be used by Obama's escort team. Premises that cried for fresh coat of paint in Nairobi's central business district have been painted. Unfriendly, gloomy, and depressed glue-sniffing street urchins, as well as regular rowdy beggars, have been rounded up, bundled into lorries, and sent to undisclosed locations on the outskirts of Nairobi. Shortly, some roads to be used by Obama's fleet of top-class security vehicles are to be closed for the period the most powerful man on the globe will be in Nairobi where security has been heightened. Intelligence reports say sniffer dogs and snipers are to be placed around buildings near the Jomo Kenyatta International Airport and Nairobi's skyscrapers where Obama's motorcade is to pass. Heavily armed American and local security personnel are preparing to take over strategic streets in the city. Kenyans have expressed mixed views on the sprucing up of Nairobi as the country's President Uhuru Kenyatta prepares to welcome Obama. A Nairobi beautician Rosalind Musioki says the beautification of Nairobi has been done late.
I wish it, the beautification of Nairobi came earlier because this is taxpayer's money and uh, the taxpayer would wish to see the beauty of Nairobi. But beautifying it for the purposes of receiving the U.S. president, we feel that uh, it's not real because Obama can come and see the way we are and the way we stay. Beauty will not add any value to his coming. Concurring with the Musioki is James Wandai, member of parliament for Ugunja constituency in western Kenya on Lake Victoria. It's pointless to just spruce up the town because President Obama is coming. In a functioning system, this should have been a matter of routine. It really demonstrates how our systems have collapsed. But Zaina Ahmed, a Nairobi housewife, contends that the beautification of Nairobi is appropriate and conforms with the universal tradition of keeping homes clean and tidy before the visitors' arrival. It is not wrong for Obama's coming, the house to be cleaned. Kenya must be clean all the time. And even when a visitor, big visitor like Obama is coming, Obama is a visitor in this country, like any other visitor. And when a visitor comes to your house, you have to sweep your house, you have to cook good food. So to me, it is necessary, actually. The cleanliness is necessary. Atul Batia, a Nairobi businessman, says Obama may not even notice that Nairobi has a new face. However, Batia wants the Kenyans to make a cleaning as part of their daily routine. I think the issue of cleaning up is not a bad thing. And when Obama is coming, he's hardly going to see the city clean. He's not going to be here long. But I think the process of cleaning should not only be that. But Agino Juang, an independent expert on East African politics, presents a different perspective of Obama's visit. The trips the President of the United States of America makes are organized to facilitate the foreign policy of the United States government. They are not pleasure trips. They are no trips to visit relatives and friends. They are state visits which are very serious. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. South Africa's based think tank, the Concerned Africans Forum, or CAF, has sent a petition to the British Home Secretary expressing outrage at the treatment of South Africans by the British High Commission. This follows the Commission's refusal to issue Muslim activist Naeem Jenner with a visa to enter the UK. The British Commission denied Jenner, who was due to attend the European Council on Foreign Relations Conference in October last year, the visa on what it describes as national security grounds. Last week, South African author Ishtiak Shukri was detained and deported from Heathrow Airport in London and his permanent residence was revoked. Shukri was to visit his wife, a British citizen. The reason given is that his last visit to the UK in 2012 was more than two years ago. He was also questioned about his visits to Yemen and the nature of his wife's work there. Member of the CAF, Dr. Esso Pahad, elaborates. First of all, Naeem Jinnah is a South African citizen. He's a well-renowned um, academic, highly respected. He's, in my view, one of the best uh, specialists that we have in this country on the Middle East. And he formed and runs AMAC, which has done some really sterling work in terms of trying to understand what's happening in, in one of the most critical areas in the world, the Middle East, including uh, the... Uh, struggle of the Palestinians for national independence. And he was refused a visa on the spurious grounds of uh, security concerns. Now, I don't know how Naim can in any, any, any way be regarded as a security threat. 
Are you of the opinion that it has anything to do with his work? He is known in the Muslim community for his pro-Palestinian views. Have you found that it's in any way linked to the work that he does? Well, that's what one hopes it isn't, because uh, that would certainly be an attack on the freedom of expression and the right of uh, a South African citizen to express his or her view. You see, one of the difficulties we are facing today is that uh, both in the UK and in other parts of Europe, we've seen a rising tendency for religious profiling and even racial profiling. And so this seems to me uh, that uh, this is both a religious as well as racial profiling of Nigeria. And we are therefore hoping as a concerned African forum uh, that the British uh, Minister of Home Affairs will rethink their refusal to grant him a visa. Tell us more about the petition, uh, Dr. Pahad. You sent it to the British Home Secretary, Ms. Theresa May, objecting to the treatment meted out to Mr. Gina and asking that the decision be reversed. Have you received any response from Ms. May? Not as yet. We should give them a few days to consider our petition. And obviously, uh, we will be waiting um, anxiously for some response from the, from the British government. Dr. Bahad, there's been criticism leveled against the UK that Africans are deliberately and unfairly refused entry visas to the UK. What do you make of this? Well, yeah, you see, one of the difficulties we are facing, and it's something that we as South Africans should be most concerned with, what we have seen in Europe in the last few years is the growth of uh, extreme right-wing organizations whose essential ideological position is racism, it's anti-immigration. So they are partly against uh, immigrants coming from other parts of Eastern Europe, but it's essentially directed against people who are not from Europe. And that, of course, is racism of its worst kind. And unfortunately... Some of the governments in Europe who should know better, instead of fighting this and, and really defeating it, are beginning to try to kind of make do and, and, and come to some kind of understanding with these people and therefore take actions which makes them seem that they are against illegal immigration. Now, we're not talking about that. Every country has a right to regulate who comes into their country. But they shouldn't have a right to refuse people, respectable people, well-known academics, the right to attend conferences in their country. And obviously, where there is a deliberate and systematic attack upon migration from the African continent, of course it makes us very, very, very disturbed and, and, and very angry. And we've got to fight this down the line. And it's the responsibility of all of us in South Africa be part of a wider pain in the continent to compel these countries to desist from their anti-African racist positions. That is Dr. Esa Pahad, a member of the Concerned African Forum, talking to Selena Ndobong. It's 17.30 Central African Time, and it's time for news headlines. Here's Onel Nzinzi.
Kenya's President Uhuru Kenyatta says the fight against extremism will be the key topic of talks with U.S. President Barack Obama. Nigeria's President Muhammadu Buhari will not appoint cabinet ministers until September, and a low turnout is being reported in several polling stations in Burundi's capital. Channel Africa News. Thank you very much, Onele. You still listen to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Spomele Lezondi, and I'm with you for another half an hour now until 1800 hours Central African time. Now, a group of South Africans who went to climb Mount Kilimanjaro in Tanzania have all returned safely back home. Five teams left the country last week to trek up the mountain in support of the fourth annual Trek for Mandela Kilimanjaro Challenge. The aim of this year's initiative was to raise enough funds to ensure that 270,000 girl children will not miss a day of school due to menstrual challenges. The United Nations has found that one in 10 African girls misses four days of school a month during their menstrual cycle. The trek for Mandela was a part of activities that revolve around Nelson Mandela Day, marked annually on the 18th of July, and that was this past Saturday. Joining us on the line to talk about the expedition is our reporter, Gillian Pillay, who joined that group. Hello and welcome to Africa Digest, um, Gillian. Good afternoon and thank you for having me on your show. Now, Gillian, how was the experience for you? You know, um, I'm a relatively fit person. I, I've, I rare, I'm a runner, and it's part of a lifestyle. So in that sense, um, you know, I was, I was chosen to represent the SABC from the newsroom in that perspective. But nothing can really prepare you for Kilimanjaro. I mean, it's not just a physical challenge. It's a mental challenge. It's a spiritual challenge. Because once you're fatigued, once you're fatigued, your fitness doesn't play a role anymore. Then it's your mental and spiritual strength that actually carries you to, to the point where you want to reach, where you want to summit. It, it was grueling. It was hard. Um, no one tells you these things about walking for seven hours a day from one camp to another. On the, on the, on the Friday, we walked for seven hours to the base camp called Kibu Camp. And then we immediately arrived there. We settled down and we just did a, an, an acclimatization exercise, 100 meters of, of incline. We then were told we, we must rest for two hours and start climbing, summiting at 11 o'clock Friday night. It took us six hours to get to the top, and this is in extreme minus 10 conditions. Walking and climbing inclines from one incline to another, taking water breaks, and it was, it was absolutely grueling. Um, we were helping one another get up rocks. We were helping one another stay warm. We were helping one another stay focused on summiting. It was, it was a real, um, it was an experience that, that really is life-changing. And the feeling once you were at the top? You know, when I, when I arrived at the top of the mountain, and that was Gilman's point, you have to walk another two hours, another 200 meters to Uhuru. The air is so thin there that you are unable to walk very far. So five short little steps and you're out of breath. And it is, it is humbling and it just it takes a lot out of you. At that point, I wanted to give up. But I wanted to summit really badly because I made a promise to myself to do this. So it took me such a long time to get out to Uhuru Point 
Uhuru Peak. Um, and along the way, people are dropping next to you. They have, I had altitude sickness. I had nausea. I, I, I had headaches. Um, so, it, it, you know, it definitely changes your life. You are not the same person that you were when you left here a week ago. You learn things about yourself. The mountain teaches you so much, so many lessons of patience, so many lessons on um, how to view life because the mountain in itself is a metaphor for life. You know, every step you take, you might not get out to the point where you need to be, but you must never give up. And when you have nothing more to give, that at that point, you must push yourself even more. That's what the mountain teaches you. It teaches you things that no matter what struggle you are in, you can get out of it. You can get, get out on top if you just persevere. Um, it's a very liberating experience, and I'm sure all the climbers share the sentiments that I'm sharing with your, with your um, listeners um, this afternoon, um, that we are not the same people that we were. We look at life very differently. If I can just share with you the conditions in the, in, in, in the huts, because one camp to another. Yeah, go we, for it. We didn't have things like hot water showers, ablution facilities. Here and there, there were one or two ablution facilities, but it's really taking the basics away. So you're really humbled. You're really out of your comfort zone. Um, you're sleeping in a, um, like a bunker room with six other or five other people. You're sharing lunches and dinners, and it's just basic stuff. But um, I think a lot of people were out of their comfort zone. We, we used wet wipes to wash, wipe down ourselves day to day. Mm. Um, and it's, it's just, you know, something out of, out of what one is used to. Yeah, um, Jillian, you are not doing this just for yourselves. And as as you talk about those home home comforts and mm-hmm. what one is used to, a lot of people are used to, um, a lot of women rather are used to um, u- using um, pads that they would find in a shop quite easily. Um, but you are doing this for young girls mm-hmm. who who have menstrual um, challenges. Mm-hmm. Can you just tell us about that initiative? I'm a I'm a I'm a female myself, so I can just imagine what it's like if I I'm menstruating and I'm not able to go to school because I don't have pads. Women, even men, you can put yourself in the shoes of those disadvantaged, impoverished young girls who stay away from school because they're too embarrassed, too ashamed um, to go to school because they, they, they can't afford pads. And this affects their education. If you stay out of school one day, it's one day too many. And those are the girls that we're doing it for. We don't want girls to stay out of school because they can't afford pads. Um, we want girls to go to school every day of the year. If you, if you educate a woman, you educate a nation. And that, though, that's why all these ambassadors, you know, took to the mountain, attempted to summit. Even those who didn't make it, they summited to their point. They might go back another time and do, take it as far as Uhuru Peak. But everyone had different, um, even if they didn't make it to Uhuru Peak, they summited to their point. And it's for those girls that we're doing it for. We want all girls to go to school. We don't, it, it shouldn't be such a weak reason as, oh, um, I can't go to school because of sanitary pads. We, as, as South Africans, we must make, make a point to support girls, even young boys, no matter what, what they're going through. We should take a stand. And the, the, these kinds of initiatives that can keep a girl in school every day of the academic year. Oh, that is brilliant and that is commendable, Chilean Pile. Thank you very much for joining us on Channel Africa this afternoon. Thank you so much. All right, so that is our reporter, Chilean Pile, telling us about her expedition as she was tracking up um, Mount Kilimanjaro as part of the Track for Mandela initiative.
This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Remember that you can also find us on the DSTV Audio Bouquet. It's channel 902 on the DSTV Audio Bouquet. It's 17.39 Central African Time. Now a new study authored by Douglas Schill, Associate Professor at the Norwegian University of Life Sciences, highlights that indigenous communities can do more for large circle conservative than protected areas. Schill is... Shil rather says indigenous communities are highly effective at protecting natural resources and can fill the gap over vast regions where formal conservation authorities are absent. Here's Wandele Kalipa. The use of natural resources for livelihoods has been undertaken by the world's communities over centuries and studies have been carried out to confirm the important role indigenous people play to do more for large conservation than protected areas. A new study carried out by Douglas Shale, associate professor at the Norwegian University of Life Sciences with expertise in botany, ecology, ethnobotany and research gate, says indigenous communities are highly effective at protecting natural resources and can fill the gap over vast regions where what is termed formal conservation authorities are absent. Yet local community practices and their significance go largely unrecognized to the extent that many communities are forcibly removed from what is termed protected areas and experts are calling for change. This study from Papua, Indonesia by Associate Professor Douglas Shell, author of the study with scientists at the Center for International Forest Research, is among the first to show how local communities are protecting extensive areas of land in contrast to consumption that such communities overuse or damage natural resources. I guess you've probably seen some of the material that C4 helped me produce for that. So I guess there's two kind of parts to our paper. And I guess the bigger part of it is we were kind of interested to, I guess, demonstrate because of our own experiences working in various parts of the world. We were very interested to try and demonstrate more clearly that local communities are very active and effective in protecting their environment. And I guess what had motivated us to be interested in that was because of our own experiences, we frequently see that. But in the scientific literature and working with other conservationists, you don't really see it acknowledged very clearly. The study carried out by the Center for International Forestry Research focuses on particular areas in Asia and East Africa. I guess my own experiences are mostly in different parts of Indonesia, so Southeast Asia, but also quite a lot in Eastern Africa, so particularly in Uganda, a bit in Kenya and Tanzania. Douglas Shell says the example his study was focusing on in the articles is a very large protected area in a part of Indonesia in Papua New Guinea. Well, I guess the example that we were actually focusing on in the article, it's a very large protected area in a part of Indonesia in Papua, so that's in New Guinea. What we were showing 
was basically the protected area there exists on maps. So it's in people's offices in the protected area authority. So those are the government people recognize the protected area. But like many protected authorities, they don't have the money and the staff to actually actively really protect it. But if you actually go to those places on the ground, you find the communities are actually the ones who are protecting it, not the government. And I guess it's also showing how effective those communities are, because in a sense, it's so far away and so inaccessible that a lot of what's happening is invisible. So communities don't really get credit for what they're doing. Douglas further says what his study highlights is that although communities can be effective in conservation, it will not always be perfect. Of course, yes. I guess one that we're highlighting is though communities can often be very effective, it's imperfect. And of course, there are new threats arising and many of those new threats are not necessarily things that the communities are well able to confront. So there are various examples in various parts of the world. We do look at other cases around the world. So there's the example, for example, of indigenous territories in the Amazon, where those communities sometimes are overrun by miners. So illegal miners are coming in. And of course, the community is not able to cope when thousands of people are coming into their territory. So they need help from outside. So the kinds of threats that we're seeing are not necessarily the kinds of threats that communities can deal with. And of course, the aspirations of the communities themselves may change over time. So for example, though they may have shown restraint in the past in terms of harvesting of rare or vulnerable species, of course, over time, people's aspirations and willingness to protect those species may change. The implementation of conservation rules in the name of conservation that does not serve the interest of the local communities is not real conservation, but a gross violation of the indigenous people's rights to interact with nature. Well, in the sites that I'm talking about, often they are at least on paper in conflict, I would say. So, for example, the site I'm talking about in Papua, the legal status of that protected area is that local people should not be there. They should not be hunting there. But, of course, because that official government body has lacks staff and resources, they're not able to really try and implement anything else. So, in a sense, it's, how do you call it, an informal standoff, I would say, that they're tolerating the presence. What we're saying is not only are they tolerating the presence, but actually the local communities are the ones that are protecting that area. Because they are the ones who are stopping commercial people coming in, for example, and exploiting that land. The way forward to better conservation would be the recognition of the important role local communities play in taking care of our natural resources. What is the way forward? I guess what we're really hoping with this paper, and I think what's really exciting about this paper, is we have the case example. But what's really interesting, I think, is what we are observing is probably much more widespread. I think it's a largely a global thing. You know, maybe in the past, local communities were pretty effective at managing their natural resources, not necessarily perfect, but there again, modern conservation agencies are not perfect either. And local communities were better able to observe the threats were and were better able to respond quickly to those threats. And I think what I would like to see now is a better recognition that in an imperfect world where you can't necessarily, you know, you don't want to see conservation in terms of black and white, working with local communities is generally going to be better for everybody, including for conservation outcomes, than what's happened historically, which is trying to remove local people and take authority away from local communities. That was Douglas Shale, Associate Professor at the Norwegian University of Life Sciences.
Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Wandile Kalipa in Johannesburg. Wesane Matebula has your economic news. Thanks, Pumelele. To boost uh, South Africa's manufacturing sector, the government has put in place action plans that provide companies with funding and incentives while also trying to level the international playing field for South African products. Manufacturing Circle member Kunrad Bezerenhout describes the current policy framework as the best in years. One of the measures is guidelines for government to buy locally. However, Aspen Pharmacare Stafras Nikolau says, unfortunately, not all government institutions follow these guidelines. Nevertheless, Bezerenhout says manufacturing cycle survey is encouraging. And we find when we, when we make these acquisitions, we acquire factories, whether it's in Brazil, Mexico, Germany, wherever it is, we find that very often our people here in Port Elizabeth or in East London are better skilled, better equipped. And for me, that sends a message. The message is that as South Africans, we can do it. South African economy will continue to face growth challenges for the next year or more. This has emerged from the South African Reserve Bank's latest business cycle indicator. It fell by 3.4% in May on an annualized basis, following a 1.5% decrease in the previous month. The central bank says among the 10 components of the indicator, seven contributed negatively to the index, while three improved in May. Director at Kaon Capital, Bridget Taylor, says today's figures signify a slowdown in the domestic economy. We can see this by the numbers and we can also see that business sentiment seems to have soured somewhat. If you look at business investments in South Africa and that's domestic investments, um, a lot of corporate companies certainly not putting cash on the table and certainly not taking long-term views um, just as they keep their eyes open with regards to where we're going to from here because the growth scenario doesn't look that peachy. Um, But then if we look at foreign investors, foreign investors doing a similar thing as a result of the low growth projections um, in terms of the outlook for South Africa over the next couple of years. Officials from the world's largest emerging nations have launched the new development bank in Shanghai, China. This is the second of two new policy banks heavily backed by Beijing that are being pitched as alternatives to existing institutions such as the World Bank, also known as the BRICS Bank. It follows soon after the establishment of the China-led Asian Investment Infrastructure Bank. The new bank will fund infrastructure and development projects in BRICS countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa. South African businessman and executive member of BRICS Bank, Sandy Lezungu, says the bank is a milestone achievement for emerging markets. BRICS Development Bank is, mm. a, is a very important and a, a milestone achievement of uh, this gathering mm. of um, mm. nations, BRICS. Uh, South Africa is, uh, just like all these other countries, uh, we deem ourselves to be a developing nation and uh, by very nature, but among other needs, need to roll out infrastructure, rail, road, even um, call it a human settlements, you know, which are, are particularly important for South Africa because our claim to membership of BRICS is that uh, we bring almost a billion of African people into this gathering of uh, nations. 
And the South African Revenue Service has confirmed that uh, more than one million taxpayers have submitted their tax returns only three weeks after the beginning of this year's tax season. According to SARS, this represents more than 23% of taxpayers who are required to submit tax returns. SARS spokesperson Luther Lebello. So by any measure, it's a very good indication of compliance of taxpayers and also the confidence that the people have in South African Revenue Services, and we are very humbled by that. The electronic filing is sitting at at least 98%, but we are very, very encouraged by the e-filing. And we continue to encourage taxpayers to use the e-filing, use their apps, because they can use their iPhones and stuff. It's 24 hours, you can do it any time of the day and night. And finally, Zimbabwe's Bindura Nickel Corporation has increased its full-year nickel production by 3% to a record 7,306 tons, while revenue was boosted by higher prices of the metal. Bindura is Africa's only integrated nickel company with air main, smelter and refinery. Its average nickel price for the year to the end of March was 16,700 US dollars per ton compared with 14,300 dollars per ton last year. The company currently sells nickel concentrates to commodities giant Glencoe. And that's how it's looking. Thank you, Sir Nitamek Doza has the sports news. Thanks for joining us in your sports update. Let's start with cricket, where South Africa have made a stuttering start at the first cricket test against Bangladesh in Chittagong. The Proteus, who won the toss and were hoping to improve on their legluster performance in the one-day series earlier this month, were bowled out for 248 on day one. Trevor Bavuma was the best batsman for the visitors. He was the last man out for 54. 19-year-old Mustafizur Rahman took five wickets for 37 runs on debut for Bangladesh, including three wickets in four deliveries. Bangladesh reached seven without a loss at the close. UFR's head of communications, Pedro Pinto, says that four out of six continental soccer confederations would back Michel Platini, head of European soccer governing body UEFA, to lead the sports world governing body FIFA should he stand. However, Frenchman Platini, who was re-elected for a third term as UEFA president in March, has not yet decided whether to run for the election to replace outgoing President Zeblatter on the 26th of February. Pedro Pinto. The UEFA president is very pleased to be in his current position as leader of European football's governing body. Um, He has been pleased to hear a lot of words of support from some of uh, the world's leading football decision makers and that has not gone unnoticed. Um, So he will have to make a decision uh, regarding what his next steps are. He's not ready to make that decision now. But he has been impressed by the fact that many people could see him as a possible successor. That's, that's a question that the president himself will, will have to answer. I think that uh, it will be in the, in the coming weeks that he will decide whether he will or he will not uh, run for FIFA president. Pinto says Platini would consider his position in the near future and would announce his intentions when he is ready. He has had a lot of positive conversations here in Zurich. Um, again, he has been very, very pleased to hear a lot of support from some of the most important uh, men in world football. And 
uh, of course that that means a lot to him. Uh, of course, the fact that people are asking him to run uh, means a lot to him as well. Uh, it's something he will have to decide. It's a, it's a big decision for him. Uh, he loves UEFA. He loves uh, being associated with with European football's governing body, all the competitions, all the football. So it's a, it's a big decision that he'll have to make soon. And now in swimming, Team South Africa returned home with three medals from the recently concluded IPC World Swimming Championships in Glasgow in Scotland. Not only that, but the swimmers managed to bring five African records, one championship record and 11 Paralympic qualifications time for next year's Paralympic Games. Swimming South Africa CEO Sean Adriansa says that it was a good performance by Team South Africa. Very happy with the performance considering, you know, that the first, the first objective of the team was to to make Paralympic qualifying times. And so they've done that with 11 Paralympic ones. They've really achieved the objectives. So we're quite happy with the performance. Gold medal uh, from Tehan Paul, very good, right? And two points means medals from Henry Arch. I mean, that's an excellent performance. Of course, you know, it does in comparison uh, to what we have before, naturally, the to retire. You know, she was like one in a million uh, type of uh, uh, athlete. So that has certainly made a big dent, but these other athletes are working very hard, as you can see from the performances, to make sure that they build a bit for us. And finally, in golf, the former Masters champion, Zach Johnson, now has a claret jug to add to his green jacket. The America has won the Open Championship, finishing 15 under par after defeating South Africa's Louis Ostersen and Mark Lishman in a playoff. Nick Dye reports. Johnson's a humble man, accepting he's an under-the-radar player but he loves Lynx golf and he's twice before finished top 10 in the Open. The 2007 Augusta champion has enjoyed one of the lowest rounds of the final day, a 66 to soar to the top of the leaderboard. He noted Leishman miss a birdie putt at the last, which could have given the Australian a victory. He saw Oosthuizen, the 2010 champion, birdie 18 to make it a three-man playoff. Johnson then birdied the opening two holes of the four-hole decider and never looked back. Jordan Spieth, chasing a hat-trick of Grand Slam titles, came up just short in fourth. The Irish amateur Paul Dunn faltered on the final day, leaving another American, Jordan Niebrugger, with a silver medal. But the gold medal goes to the champion golfer of the year, Zach Johnson. That's the end of our sport. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Africa Digest. Let's talk about top stories. Burundi's controversial presidential elections get underway. In economics, South Africa's Kumba Iron also spends its half-year dividends for the first time after a plunge. And in sports, South Africa and Bangladesh take on the first test match in Chittagong. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. From Ms. Pumela Lezondi and the rest of the team, bye-bye. We leave you with Nizolongo Bani by Tandiswamazwai. Revolutionaries die And the children forget The ghetto is our first love And our dreams are drenched in gold 
No more 